The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for March 12, 2022. We're now two weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This week, the U.S. banned the import of Russian energy resources. Moscow is recruiting Syrian fighters skilled in urban combat to send to Kyiv. And the International Criminal Court announced it would open an investigation into potential war crimes stemming from the conflict. Could we have seen the Russian invasion of Ukraine coming? What were the political and economic postures of countries in Eastern Europe just two years ago? And how does that inform what we know about the conflict today? To answer these questions, I chose an archive episode from November 2020. In the episode, Ben Wittes sat down with Lieutenant Colonel, retired, Alex Vindman to discuss how democracies in Eastern Europe can hang together and harden themselves against attacks from authoritarian regimes. They also spoke about what a good Russia policy looked like for the Biden administration in 2020, and how we can rebuild traditional American alliances. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 20th, 2020. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, retired, is now the Pritzker Military Fellow at the Lawfare Institute, the newest member of the Lawfare team. You've heard his story in a hundred places, including in his own testimony in the impeachment proceedings last year for President Trump. But we had him on the podcast today for a different reason, because of his substantive expertise in Eastern Europe policy, Russia matters, and great power competition. What are the challenges that the Biden administration is going to face as it tries to pick up the pieces the Trump administration has left it? How can democracies hang together and harden themselves against attacks from authoritarian regimes? What does a good Russia policy look like? How does China fit in? And how can we rebuild traditional American alliances? It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 20th. Alex Vindman talks Eastern Europe. Hey, folks, quick note before we get started. Alex Vindman will be joining us on Lawfare Live today, that is to say Friday at noon, to take your questions on Lawfare Live. Lawfare Live is reserved for our Patreon supporters, but no matter if you're not one of them, you can become one. 
We'll be live at noon with Alexander Vindman today. Alex, I want to start with your sense of what an incoming Biden administration will see when they look at Eastern Europe, Russia, and sort of the problems of uh, great power competition. Sure. Thanks, Ben. First of all, let me thank you and uh, Lawfare for your support and uh, uh, for giving me an opportunity to participate. And I guess this will be an inaugural uh, Lawfare podcast. So thanks again. Indeed. And- Welcome to the crew. Yeah. So let's see. That's that's a small question. I mean, uh, I, I could probably answer that one pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> now, the, the host of challenges is going to be uh, significant. Probably one of the, the reasons that it's going to be as big as it uh, as they are is um, the last four years have really kind of weakened uh, the U.S. Uh, position in the world, undermined U.S. credibility. And uh I think the domestic challenges of the Biden administration uh, will be enormous to to rebuild, to really arrest the decline, and then to rebuild the integrity and the trust in institutions. It's going going to be harder than it is today, because for the next sixty days or so, uh, we will have a president, and unfortunately, probably even a Republican Party that's complicit uh, with the president's efforts to undermine the fundamental institutions that support our democracy. The the whole notion of a peaceful transition of power is, is lost on, on this president. Uh, I think traditionally parties recognize that they'll have another bite at the apple in the future if they are able to entice enough uh, voters to come back to their, their policy views, their views of the world. Uh, this president you know, doesn't see the world in the same way. It's uh, the only thing he cares about is the loss of the world. So lots of challenges domestically. What does that mean uh, internationally? It means that our we are relatively weaker and our uh, adversaries are relatively stronger. Our alliances uh, uh, that probably are, I mean, that, that are in fact a, a significant multiplier effect on uh, U.S. power are weakened. And uh, specifically with regards to Russia and its interests, uh, that um, they're being extremely well served at the moment by um, a president that is basically challenging this notion of both the U.S. leadership and democracy as kind of a viable form of uh, governance. And I think that they do that for multiple reasons. One of them is it's a good way to distract and prevent U.S. attention from turning to overseas challenges if they're if the U.S. is focused domestically. Uh, it allows the, the Russians, uh, in particular in Eastern Europe, to continue to use coercive tools and um, compel desired outcomes, whether that's through use of uh, uh, force. We've seen that play out a couple times already. Uh, Georgia, Ukraine, both in Crimea and Donbass, and then uh, through hybrid tools, cyber operations, illicit finance networks, all sorts of different things. And then that obviously, uh, you know, between the, the the two preeminent authoritarian states, the the Chinese are also benefiting from the uh, from this very solid view of the United States. So, a lot of challenges that we're going to face, and I think the the first step is going to be to probably to to start to think about how we pull together the democracies to harden themselves and and become more resilient to these types of attacks. All right, so let's let's break that down. It has a there's a lot of themes there, and let's talk about them individually. So the first 
question that you, it's not the first question that you raised, but it's the first one I want to talk about is the sort of lure of authoritarian regimes relative to democratic regimes. Obviously, we have had our own flirtations with that over the last several years. But if you're going to get the democracies to, in a meaningful sense, harden themselves and stand together, they got to have confidence that you are going to remain in that camp, uh, which is where this the domestic side of this and the international side crash into each other. So if if you were in your prior position or in the State Department and you know you were trying to talk to the eastern european countries some of whom are more democratic at this point than others frankly and you were trying to get them together in a sort of hardening hardening democracies against external pressure kind of way what would you be saying to them given that their reasonable response might be who are you guys to talk to us about that so I think we would tend to get more of that kind of response from uh, countries that are backsliding and countries that are kind of in the authoritarian camp rather than our allies. Our allies actually uh, would have consistently remained uh, loyal to this notion of uh, of a United States that plays a positive, affirmative role in advancing the interests of democracy. So I'm not sure how much we have to sell ourselves on on, on this notion, except the, the underlying fact that you know we could have a reversal for four years. So do we engage in long-term projects or do we try to do, you know, relatively transactional activities to advance the interests of democracy in a four-year stint, recognizing that, again, there could be reversals? I think um, what aids us in this is both Eastern Europe and Western Europe, uh, frankly, democracies as a whole, face many of the same challenges. They face uh, the rise of what I called uh, isms. So that's, um, you know, their own forms of of systemic racism, populism, ethnocentric nationalism uh, that exist even absent the efforts of adversaries to exploit them. And there are are a number of other uh, kinds of challenges, uh, inequality, uh, growing inequality between uh, the haves and the have-nots, the inefficient distribution of wealth and benefits from globalization and and so forth uh, that the United States and other democracies will face. So I think there's a project, a natural project, where the United States and these other democracies could start to collaborate on solutions that might not be applicable to all in the same way, but there is a symmetry in the kinds of solutions uh, that we could all share. And basically taking those types of solutions is probably the, the best thing we could do to harden ourselves against the rise of authoritarian states that are using different kinds of tools, both a course of tools and enticements to undermine established democracies, emerging democracies, struggling democracies. It's the internal solutions that are going to be deterministic of success uh, rather than kind of just focusing on punishing Russia or China for, for their malign influence. So that's the first thing. I think there's a, a project in hand, and I'm, I'm actually uh, writing an article on this uh, currently on this idea of U.S. taking a leadership role and pulling together the democracies to solve democracies' internal challenges as well as the assault from authoritarian states. 
and then of course, you know, just a, um, a minute on the external issues. I think there has to be a high degree of pragmatism. Frankly, we're, we're, we shouldn't be looking to pick a fight with great powers, you know, and, and uh, indicate that there would be some sort of effort towards regime change. I think it should be a much more sophisticated view of areas where there, there is going to be a cooperation, uh, areas that, and areas that we're going to disagree on, where we'll continue to advocate for democratic principles, but at the same time, not, you know, uh, seek regime change. And we, we in fact, have the benefit of our ideological view that the arc of uh, history will bend towards democracy. Things will move in that direction. We will continue to support the transparency, the institution building required for democracies, but we don't have to do that through some sort of acute regime change. What we do have to do, though, is when our democracies are attacked by malign influence, we need to consider reciprocity. And the fact that uh, as distasteful as it is and as consistent as we are in applying a a principle-based approach, our adversaries are not, they see the world in a zero-sum game, we'll have to do something to uh, establish deterrence and prevent these authoritarian powers from interfering in our internal affairs. And that very well may be something along the lines of fighting fire with fire. All right. So those are some important kind of ideational substrata of policy, but they're more, it's more thematic than it is policy. So let's bring it down to brass tacks. You are now the Biden administration that has coming in, or you're whispering in the ear of the president as he comes in, you're for obvious reasons, acutely aware of what has not happened over the last four years and also what has happened over the last four years, uh, positive and negative. And so the president turns to you and says, Alex, let's look at your region and figure out what's the low-hanging fruit that we should be doing differently with respect to Russia, but also with respect to supporting democracies in Eastern Europe and encouraging Uh, those countries that are engaged in democratic backsliding to, you know, put some sandpaper on their butts and slow down or or reverse themselves. What does the first six months of a different Eastern Europe policy look like to you? Sure. So I think from a realistic standpoint, uh, I think the first six months are going to have to be collaborating to in the next six months, uh, because again, I'm realistic about the kinds of challenges we face domestically, but in the you know within a year time frame, uh, organize a and this is not a new new thought, but organize a uh, democracy summit and bring together. And I think we would have a enormous amount of interest and a lot of willing partners to to participate in this kind of summit, uh, where we pull together the democracies. Uh, there is a effort to generate a just like we've done with regards to Russia and and you know the Wales summit and so forth uh, generate a common view of the threat perceptions of, of Russia uh, do the same thing for the threat uh, to democracy and emerging from that have a series of solutions that could help address the challenges to democracies I think part of these solutions are going, going to be a look at how information flows and how our adversaries take take advantage of free and open information channels to insert disinformation that 
undermines the notion of kind of a, a, a truth narrative, an absolute truth, uh, and uh, something that potentially gets democracies to to question kind of very foundational and fundamental ideas about the, uh, democracy. So I think uh, there's gonna, going to have to be a information component to it. I think uh, illicit uh, finance is gonna have to be another component that again, the US and all democracies, I don't think this is a problem just for Eastern Europe. This is a problem for the UK, it's a problem uh, for France, Greece, many, many places. But look at illicit finance and uh, how illicit finance flows promote some sort of extreme polarization by supporting, you know, far right, far left parties and things of that nature. So that's a second thing, information, uh, illicit finance. I think another idea uh, would be a, a notion of how do you support uh, struggling democracies? Uh, there's quite a bit that could be done with regards to aid, I, I think. And there's there are different kinds of categories of struggling democracies. There's There are democracies that are backsliding, Hungary, Turkey, Poland right now uh, are backsliding. Uh, they they will be less willing to do that. And then there are, there are struggling democracies that actually are, are facing the challenges of, um, let's say, for instance, Russia in Ukraine that want our help and uh, are, are looking for assistance and uh, are willing partners. So there are different solutions for each one of those. And we shouldn't kind of neglect the, the very uh, draw of uh, luster of China and Chinese style of prosperity and what that does for struggling democracies that are trying to determine whether they want to move down the road of you know, the Western liberal order or take some shortcuts to prosperity and uh, you know run their governments and something closer to China. So that's a, a, another very uh, difficult challenge for, that we'll have to face. All right. So in this democracy summit, who do you include and exclude? Because there are these countries, and you mentioned uh, Hungary and Poland and Turkey, so let's think about those, that are kind of nominally democratic, but have uh, Poland is less far down the urbanization uh, slide than Hungary is, but Erdogan is both elected and quite the strong man at this point. Is the goal of this kind of summit to include our traditional allies who may be treaty allies, but are also, you know, not model democracies at this point? Or is the goal to exclude them and thus to, you know, say, look, you want to be part of this club? there are responsibilities as well as benefits, and we're not going to pretend that all elected governments are created equal here. Yeah. You know, uh, my my thought would be to not exclude anyone per se. Uh, I think even Russia and China can be there in some sort of role as observers. I think the, 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 the fear that they have is that these enterprises would automatically be geared on regime change and destabilizing non- democracies and there's going to be uh we, we will they won't believe what we say they probably won't even believe our actions they believe that's probably what we're doing now uh but at least there's some uh transparency in offering them an opportunity to you know participate in, in some way as observers you know that obviously points to this notion that we would include all our existing treaty allies what i would suggest is that we don't look for consensus-based solutions Maybe uh, it could be something along the lines of coalition of the willing. And I, I have a feeling that that coalition would be enormous and that would want to participate in, uh, you know, basically 
identifying solutions and potentially even burden sharing, which is the, a high bar for us. We we no longer can carry the burden of basically defending the uh, democracy on our own. The numbers, uh, economics don't don't lend to that. So I think we we frankly look at solutions where everybody uh, is able to participate. The outputs could be it would be of course ideal if there's some sort of compact that comes out. But if it becomes if it comes becomes watered down because of the fact that we need to achieve consensus with everyone, I don't think that's the case. I think uh, what we do is you know we we look we it's an exchange of best practices fundamentally. So we look at solutions and uh, a coalition of the willing to to advance this notion. And this would probably be the first of of a series of uh, democracy summits in which we kind of assess where we are, where we're doing. I think there's something to be said about you know coming up with an idea of uh, whether democracies are doing better in aggregate and then constituent states are doing better in aggregate a year down the road, a couple of years down the road. So there's a, a score sheet associated with that. There's probably also some sort of way to assess whether we've ad- advanced the interests of democracy more broadly uh, or whether you know democracy continues to decline as it has uh, seemingly has over the past uh, decade or two. So I, I don't think this is, you know, Transparency alone uh, dictates that we go with uh, um, more rather than less and then come up with some means where, again, we don't water down solutions. If we're not calling out in the first iteration individual states like Hungary and Turkey and and Poland, and we're just talking about what, what challenges the countries face, again, we'll find quite a bit of commonality. And, and if they don't want to sign certain communiques and certain commitments or certain statements of best practices, that will speak for itself? Uh, that's exactly what I'm suggesting, is that they would want to participate uh, and uh, you know, continue to burnish their, their credibility as, as democratic states and part of their democratic community. So the goal is, is less to create specific international legal obligations than it is to actually actively speak on behalf of democracy again, to sort of make democracy cool again. I, I think so. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting in, in drafting this, uh, this, this paper that I'm working on, I was startled by, um, you know, some very quick stats that I, was, I, I compiled. I looked at I looked at two things, basically the, the number of, of democratic states versus authoritarian states. And, uh, you know, the numbers have definitely been shifting away from democracy towards authoritarianism. And then I looked at kind of the economic horsepower behind dem- democratic states. And what I discovered is, uh, you know, I, I took two measures, one in uh, 2019 and one in 1992. In 1992, when the, the U.S. was at the height of its power, uh, unipolar world, the Soviet Union had collapsed. 94% of the wealth resided amongst democracies. That's in the G20. I try to use a manageable number amongst the G20. Now, some 30 years later, just about 38% of that wealth is now with authoritarian states. So you have 62, the remainder 62% uh, is with democracies. That's an enormous shift. That's an enormous shift towards authoritarian states and the kind of the capability that enables for authoritarian states, but it also uh, points to the fact that, again, the United States can't hold and defend democracy by itself. It has to be a concerted effort by the other democracies in the uh, uh, in the world that can help come up with a series of solutions and and you know meet this challenge. All right, so 
let's talk about two prominent non-democratic leaders who are, say, not encompassed in this vision. One is Vladimir Putin and the other is Xi Jinping. And you had said that one thing we you know, should be thinking about is forms of confrontation that don't threaten regime change. We have, of, of course, no capacity to change the Chinese regime and realistically no capacity to change the Russian regime either. If in the first six months you're planning a sort of democracy gathering in the second six months, what does the first six months of Russia policy consist of? Presumably merely not having Helsinki-type summits or you know, praise of the president of Russia is itself a significant change, but the policy isn't composed simply of the absence of the egregious aspects of the former policy. What does a first year of a Biden administration with respect to Russia look like? Yeah, I think uh, from the Russian side, uh, the Russian perspective, there'll be kind of a, a feel out period. Uh, I think from the from the U.S. side, we're likely to put feelers out to see if there is some sort of accommodation to be made, but with the understanding that that's not likely and that there'll be a need to kind of ratchet up pressure to deter Russian aggression and malign influence. From the, the Russian side, on the other hand, I think they're going, going to try to figure out what does uh, Biden administration mean for them? And they'll probably take, as they often do, they'll take their cue off of uh, U.S. actions. So if we in putting out our feelers to, to the Russians to identify that the rules have changed and there will be a more significant cost imposed for Russian aggression, malign influence. And that's that's basically something like the sort of Damocles kind of uh, over their heads uh, as a warning rather than an immediate cost that's imposed. I think we, we're likely to potentially see a much more cautious Russia. If we immediately respond with kind of a, a host of sanctions, in some ways, I think you could really justify and say that they're warranted. Uh, the Russians have been behind the scenes, uh, you know, seeking to undermine democracy in the United States and Europe. Uh, so it's warranted, but that's likely to result in kind of uh, an escalation and a more acute relationship with the Russians. So I think there should be two parallel tracks that are pursued. One is a frank conversation with the Russians, and it doesn't have to, of course, you know, the decisions are made in the Russian system at, at uh, chief executive level, so Putin, but that's not going to happen with Biden anytime soon. So you have to kind of trust and empower subordinates, probably like the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, to have those frank conversations with Vladimir Putin kind of indicate that the rules have changed and the consequences could be high for Russian aggression. They'll deny it. They'll say we haven't been doing anything wrong, but they will take the warning and likely, you know, adjust their actions accordingly. At the same time, we should be preparing to for the the eventuality, the possibility of a, a much more confrontational uh, relationship with Russia in marshalling our forces. Those are going to be kind of the the standard toolkit that we've employed, maybe to excess with regards to sanctions. I say to excess because uh, I think it's to the uh, sanctions were used to the exclusion of other tools, but uh, potentially looking at, you know, again, imposing a cost, almost like a reciprocal action 
for Russian aggression. Now, I'm not advocating for us to stoop to their level per se, but in order to achieve deterrence, uh, we potentially may have to take a look at a response to Russian interference in U.S. domestic or Western politics by something along the lines of kind of targeted messaging campaigns to the Russian population. They're not all that dissimilar to what we did uh, in the Cold War. And it's not where we want to be. It's not where, you know, our Western liberal mindset feels most comfortable, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of communism. But it's something that we really seriously need to consider to, again, achieve deterrence. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, I'm trying to think about what that looks like in practice. So, there are two states in Eastern Europe where I think are plausible flashpoints for, you know, sort of an early effort to test what you're talking about and to to sort of establish that there's a new sheriff in town and there are there are new rules as well. One is Ukraine, of course, where there is a, you know, ongoing conflict. And the other is Belarus, where, of course, the Russian-backed dictator Lukashenko has been, in fact, defeated in an election and, unlike Donald Trump, is capable of remaining in power despite that fact. You know, it is now January 20th, and you are Joe Biden looking at these two places where the U.S. is in, you know, sort of dialogue about democracy with Russia in an ongoing fashion. What do you do? Right. So I think, uh, I mean, both of those are extremely challenging, but out of the two, I guess I'll start with a slightly easier one, Belarus. The reason I say it's uh, slightly easier is because Putin and Russia still enjoy a high level of support amongst the, the, the Belarusian population. It's not a rejection of kind of, you know, the, uh, the Russian mindset per se. It's a rejection, explicit rejection of Lukashenko and his, and his continued rule. So there's a solution in hand in which, you know, Lukashenko is no longer in power. Uh, a new government comes in that is you know, maybe a little bit less reliable to Russia. Lukashenko hasn't been entirely reliable, but at least he's kind of, again, shares the, the same kind of worldview, you know, and with democracy, there are some risks uh, potentially for, for the Russians. But somebody that uh, there is a new leadership that's still, again, favorably disposed to the Russians, but is not Lukashenko. So that's what I think the ultimate solution, if Lukashenko leaves, is going to look like. And I, I say if it's it's because in spite of the fact that you know have you have a 
really an enormous amount of bravery from from the population resisting security crackdowns. Uh, time tends to be on the side of of the dictator, uh, you know, using security service to suppress rather than the side of the protesters that eventually kind of uh, you know start to believe that you know they're 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 just not receiving effects. They're not likely to achieve an outcome and uh, only expose themselves to greater risk. So there is a significant risk where the U.S. could play a constructive role is in declaring a support for, you know, a democratic uh, resolution to Belarus and uh, transition government without necessarily even indicating that there's some sort of a roadmap to joining the EU or any of the security structures, most importantly, uh, NATO. So I think there's some sort of, uh, there's a step to be taken there. And then, of course, there's a, a number of conversations to be had with the Russians be, uh, behind the scenes on a host of issues, amongst which you'll ha- you'll discuss uh, Belarus, Ukraine, Middle East, Venezuela, uh, arms control, a whole, a whole bunch of different things. But uh, Belarus would be, you know, if it hadn't been in, in, the, in that list, uh, when, I, when I was in the NSC and participating in um, National Security Advisor, conversations with his Russian counterparts, it, it would obviously be one now. So I think there's something to be said there. With regards to Ukraine, it's a difficult challenge. And I think really the way out of this particular confrontation is the West, including the United States, providing uh, much, much stronger support to Ukraine. And that support actually comes with significant strings attached. There has been, I think, largely, uh, or at, at least in part, due to inattention by the United States and frankly, the US indicating that it is it is no longer in favor of you know anti-corruption efforts or providing a, a um, alternative example, President Zelensky has is not shown or has not been able to kind of uh, address foundational issues with regards to um, Ukraine and its struggle for reforms uh, and democracy. Part of those um, have been rollback in transparency efforts. There's there's a, a you know kind of an e-registration of assets to uh, to prevent corruption amongst politicians and so forth. There there have been some reversals there that with U.S. and uh, EU support can again I guess undergird or um, add some uh, some strength to uh, Zelensky's efforts in, in that regard. And at the same time, there could be some aid that's rendered that, again, puts Ukraine on a path towards prosperity. And it's prosperity, ultimately, itself, that's going to make the cost of continued involvement in Ukraine particularly high. The example that you know, Ukraine prosperity sets for eastern Ukraine and ultimately for Crimea, that will be much more important than you know, the force of arms or something of that nature. We should also not uh, look, not omit, you know, potentially providing additional uh, military um, support, security assistance to, again, strengthen the Ukrainian hand. And that's going to cause some issues with the Russians, but it's it's just a reality, something that we probably need to do. Is Zelensky still one of the good guys or has he become, you know, part of the system that he ran against? Yeah. I don't know if I would describe him as... Um, part of the system he ran against, I would say that he's been less effective than certainly, uh, you know, the West would hope and that that population uh, hoped for. They just recently had local elections and his party was, you know, was beaten handedly. 
that is is probably the best signal of you know how how well he's performing, and he's underperforming at the moment. But again, I, I, I we shouldn't underestimate the example, the bad example that uh, the Trump administration provided on anti-corruption efforts and uh, how that probably uh, really undermined Zelensky's ability to, to get things done. We had a lot of hopes on on what we could do and we put together, well, actually, I was able to uh, lead a, an effort to put together a plan to support anti-corruption reform efforts uh, some sector-related uh, engagements, you know, to to help build the budgetary support for for some of the initiatives. So you know, that was in the form of energy and economic cooperation, security assistance, and we were were not able to implement those. And uh, it, it this happened during a time where Zelensky, although he had a very popular, uh, he had a popular mandate, and he won by landslides. Him and his party won by landslides. He was still facing enormous internal headwinds with regards to um, oligarchs and uh, corrupt interests holding the kind of the preponderance of the of the power. So I think he, he's definitely underperformed, but he's only one year into a uh, five year tenure. So I think there's a lot of op- there's still uh, you know plenty of opportunity to to reverse course, and we could help him. We could help him do that. So if Joe Biden very early in his presidency has that White House meeting with Zelensky that the Ukrainians were seeking from the time of Zelensky's election and, of course, was famously uh, held hostage to opening an investigation of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, if Joe Biden were to come into office, immediately invite Zelensky to the White House and talk about and prioritize precisely the anti-corruption stuff that Zelensky campaigned on, that everybody except in, in the U.S. government, except the president and Rudy Giuliani, were excited to have him working on and to work with him on. And we were to kind of, to coin a phrase, hit a reset button in our relationship with the Zelensky presidency. Is it too late for that to be effective or is that still a a path forward for U.S. and Ukraine? I think it absolutely is a path forward. I think, um, you know, it's hard to imagine amongst the, the various priorities that uh, it'll be kind of the first meeting that President Biden has but I would imagine that uh, sometime in the first six months, there w- is likely to be a meeting uh, between President Zelensky and President Biden. You know, behind the scenes, supporting that meeting would be a series of initiatives that you know we will have already made progress on, and with more high bar uh, objectives over the longer term, that would support this kind of meeting. And I can't say this uh, that you know, uh, Vice President. Elect Kamala Harris would necessarily, um, you know, fill this role. But President Biden filled a uh, Vice President Biden filled a a kind of a unique role, frequently traveling to Ukraine to uh, support the Poroshenko administration as they were kind of uh, facing the challenges of of a war with Russia. Uh, I would like to see some key leader engagement uh, that is able to, on a regular basis engage with the Ukrainians, you know, take this kind of uh, forward-looking view 
on uh, and advancing this the idea that you know the outputs of this democracy summit. Probably the biggest challenge to that, of course, is that you know we we still have a um, Senate that's undecided, and at the best case scenario is a fifty fifty outcome come the first week of January, and then you you would have to have um, the vice president preside as the president of the Senate in order to get things done, which really limits her ability to potentially gauge over engage overseas and fill the same role that Vice President Biden did. But I'd like to see uh, maybe that's the that could be a uh, secretary of state. It could be a national security advisor. It could be, uh, you know, it could be a very empowered deputy or assistant secretary that's that, you know, basically takes that as one of the key areas of focus to really help usher in a um, much more effective integration of Ukraine into into the EU, into the West, and, um, you know, with the, all, all the underlying requirements to do so. I think it's realistic. I think it's certainly realistic to, to, for something like that to happen in the first six months. Uh, the bar for that would be, it wouldn't be just a meeting for the, for the sake of having a meeting. It would, it would have to have a number of, you know, accomplishments and, and deliverables emerging from that. And it would need a consistent level of attention from, from the United States to support that. And I, I see this as, as a supporting element to this democracy summit project. All right, let's talk about Xi Jinping. So unlike Vladimir Putin, who really does not propose a model internationally, he just, he's kind of a great power troll. China does have a model that they're exporting and they're exporting it pretty aggressively. It is less salient in your neck of the woods, but you know, from a great power competition point of view, presumably the Biden administration does not come in with a hey let's let's have a, a a sort of multiple personality disorder approach to China in which we on one level praise Xi Jinping and insist that he is doing the right thing with Uyghurs and also decry the virus as a as a Chinese export. So how do you understand the aspect of your democratic consolidation concerns and interests as pertains to China, which of course will be our principal geopolitical rival, notwithstanding our quite reasonable obsession with Russia? Sure. So this is probably not the best way to put it. It's not to the Trump administration's credit, but as a result of the administration, uh, the Trump administration, the uh, relationship with China is probably forever changed. And one of the benefits is that there is a much more kind of uh, realistic view of the the threat of China uh, of of China's emergence that you know both parties uh, now share. Now, does that need to automatically uh, devolve into a hostile and confrontational relationship? No, uh, it does not. I, I don't. I don't think it does. But it does mean that there will be certain features of the of the relationship that that will become far more challenging. So, China's efforts to to use its economic power to extract concessions from from Western uh, business uh, and the, the views on that are uh, that, you know, this is a, a key, key issue, theft of intellectual property, 
this is not something that's going to be reversed. I mean, there, there's not going to be a return to some sort of benign view of, of the rise of China. Uh, and I think at a, as a result of that, you, even in this democracy summit, there'll be an effort to understand that China is using its enormous wealth to um, you know, entice, oftentimes it's entice, not just coerce, not just um, um, engage in corrupt practices, but oftentimes it's entice. It's the benefits of you know, working with China and uh, keeping China uh, uh, you know, on sides that, that actually uh, allows China to achieve its, its outcomes. Uh, it's this notion that if you run afoul of China, your economic relationship can be irreparably harmed. And we've seen this play out, you know, uh, in Norway over the uh, nomination of a, a Chinese dissident uh, as a, a Nobel laureate or in the Pacific Islands with Pacific Island uh, nations not supporting China's enterprise to isolate Taiwan. That's the that's the punishment side. But there's. I think maybe more importantly, the kind of the 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 side of the equation where China's wealth and the prosperity that a, a positive relationship can bring to a country is is maybe the the more you know overriding factor. So I think uh, these are these are challenges that the United States and other democracies are, are going to have to face. China, because of its dis- disproportionate power tends to use uh, that power on a bilateral basis and it uses it effectively. I gave you a couple of examples. It's doing the same thing with regards to, you know, an emerging uh, backlash in Australia over uh, Chinese malign influence. It's able to do that on a bilateral basis. I think the future is a world in which there is something at least slightly more closely hewing to uh, NATO, for instance, where you could bring in your alliance structure to balance out against uh, uh, China's malign influence. That that is much much easier to to do in the security uh, sphere, where you could have uh, a burgeoning quad alliance between the U.S., Australia, India, Japan, to push back on kind of excessive claims uh, for China. It becomes much more challenging in, in the economic sphere because again, China has enormous wealth, and you can't easily offset that by you know one, two, or three countries that have interests elsewhere going in and you know replacing the loss of. Uh, engagement with China. But that's that's a reality that is going to have to be faced because it's more than likely that the challenges that our allies will have with China are not going to be in the security sphere. There'll be some of that. It's the economic sphere that we're going to have to deal with. And less acute than, than Russia, the information sphere where uh, the, the Chinese are using their wealth to purchase um, news networks and you know, airtime to promote the idea of China as kind of a uh, benevolent actor and diplomatic sphere also. So uh, there's it's 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 a much more challenging issue because it, it it's all elements of statecraft that we're going to have to try to deal with with regards to China. Finally, I want to talk about traditional U.S. military alliances, uh, in particular NATO, but also you know it's worth thinking about South Korea with respect to China. Uh, these alliances have taken a real beating over the last four years and confidence in the U.S. and whether we will be there when it counts is really down. Some of the countries in question are more unambiguously democratic than others. Turkey, of course, is a prominent NATO member. What do you do to 
reassure traditional treaty allies, quite apart from democracy as such, but our traditional treaty allies that the U.S. is back in its traditional role. That's 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 uh, not an easy problem because um, again, there's you you may very well earn the confidence of our allies that the next four years will be kind of a return to normalcy, but that doesn't mean that you know the subsequent four years won't be kind of a return to a malignancy of of uh, the Trump era. So I think uh, what you probably need to do in in this kind of uh, situation is you need to to make the foundation strong regardless of kind of what what administrations of power and one of the things that the U- us will continue to do under less provocatively and less uh aggressively is pursue this notion of burden sharing and the and the fact that we and our allies need to more equitably share the load of of uh collective de- defense and uh you know security provision of uh, regional security i would say that a continuing trajectory on um, our allies Making you know their two percent obligations in the in, in with regards to NATO, burden sharing with our allies in the Pacific, is is kind of the, uh, the foundation that we we need to move forward on. Separately, there are, are plenty of things we could do, kind of on the operational and tactical level, we'll continue to advance interoperability, integration of systems, and so forth. That will just make us more effective and a, and a harder target for adversaries. I think you hit on the kind of the biggest challenge. It's 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 by far the political challenge and and the absence of certainty for our allies on you know what kind of nation the United States is. I think again, you know, the, a democracy project of the kind I've articulated makes good headway in terms of underscoring the kind of nation we are, the kind of challenges we need to face that could prevent a uh, reversion back to you know the malignancy of a, a Trump era. Uh, there are you know what I would call legitimate and illegitimate grievances within states. The isms are, are a category of uh, not legitimate grievances that still need to be addressed. And then the legitimate ones are, you know, inequality, polarization, the urban rural divides and so forth that, that we could potentially collaborate with our allies on. Alex Vinman, welcome to Lawfare. And thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Ben. Uh, Looking forward to having more of these in the future. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the long-suffering Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Tweet about us, share us on Facebook, upvote us on Reddit, Pin us on Pinterest and make TikTok videos about us if you have downloaded TikTok, which you most certainly should not do. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one and only Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.